You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Shireen Hamza. Today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hill. He's a junior research fellow at Christchurch University of Oxford, and we'll be talking about the Nahda and new ways of conceptualizing the Nahda. Uh, for those of you that might not know or may have just heard it once or twice, you know the Nahda is seen as this moment of Renaissance and 19th century Arabic thought, the moment when people, when Arabs kind of grasped again at uh, the cultural uh, live wire that kind of gave birth to their national um, revival. And I think there's been quite a few different scholars now who've been re-examining this narrative, re-examining the origins of it. And one of them is Dr. Peter Hill, who's with us on the show. Hi, I'm very pleased to be here. He's written a few articles. Uh, one of them, among them, is the first Arabic translations of Enlightenment literature, the Damietta Circle of 1800s and 1810s as well as being part of the Oxford Nahda workshop with Hossein Omar. And this will be a, hopefully part of an ongoing uh, re-evaluation of the Nahda in the coming years. Let's start with this basic question. You know, just give us a brief overview, maybe for those listeners that don't know that much about the Nahda. You know, what is it? What's going on? Within the, I guess, the standard accounts of the Nahda, which go back to the early 20th century, mm-hmm. um, in Arabic with people like Georges Zedan in his History of Arabic Literature, who is part of the kind of later Nahda period himself, particularly with George Antonius's book, The Arab Awakening, which right. is very famous. And then obviously later on with um, Albert Horani's uh, Arabic Thought in the Liberal Age. The Nahda has been seen as this primary moment of intellectual entry into the modern world for the Arabs, taking up the heritage of the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and uh, very much kind of, well, for Antonia, certainly, but also for others within a sort of teleological movement towards um, Arab nationalism. Mm. So a national awakening. And it's been compared to the Renaissance in Europe, classically, and very much seen as something which is derived from Europe and mm-hmm. from European modernity. When scholars write about the Nahda, they usually focus on these intellectuals in, let's say, 1850s, 60s, 70s, uh, Beirut and other places. Well, actually, I think to, to an extent, if you look at most of the things, most of the work that's been done recently on what I guess we can still call the Nahda, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a clumsy term. It's, right. uh, it implies quite a lot of ideological claims to newness and so on, which were not necessarily made by all of the people that we're talking about in the period itself. Of mm-hmm. But if we look at recent work that's been done on it, actually a lot of that um, starts or only really gets going in the kind of last quarter of the 19th century. And this earlier period, going back into the kind of 1860s, 50s, 40s, and then to the start of the century, so the period of the, of the Damietta Circle that... Um, that you mentioned, 
Um, that's been done far less, actually. Mm. Um, and I think one of the reasons is possibly that it doesn't fit into this kind of teleological narrative because you don't have things like um, Arab nationalism yet. Um, you may have things which you can see as precursors of Arab nationalism, but you you don't have um, that kind of strong opposition between an Arab identity and a Turkish identity um, that, that later emerges in, in the kind of Abdul Hamid period of the Ottoman right. Empire. So why don't we begin with that? You know, what is this Damietta Circle? Why did you decide to study it? How did you find out about it? Oh, so, yeah, the, the Damietta Circle was something that I came across while I was doing my um my doctoral work mm -hmm. um, and it's not really part of the doctoral work at all uh, because that's really much more on um, concepts of civilization and utopian thinking in the kind of middle decades of the 19th century um, but I kind of stumbled across it and it was so fascinating that I had to sort of set everything else aside for a few months and just and just sort of do it properly because basically most of the kind of first bits of the modern translation movement, the translation of enlightened works into Arabic that we're all familiar with, are generally seen as starting um, really in the sort of 1830s and 40s and classically so, when... Sorry. sorry to interrupt. I mean, what, you know, we'd say that we're all familiar with these, 18, you know, these initial translations, but what are they just so we... Oh, know. okay. Yeah. So th these are things done by, say, Rafal Tatawi and his group of translators um, under Mehmed Ali in, uh, in Egypt. They're translating um, things like uh, Voltaire's history of Peter the Great. Uh -huh. um, they're, they're translating Scottish Enlightenment historians. Uh, they're translating modern geography books from you know the sort of late nineteenth, uh, um, sorry, late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, mostly from French. And then I guess through to uh, the kind of eighteen sixties, you also have um, people in. Uh, Beled Sham, particularly Beirut, who are in contact with the American missionaries, taking up similar themes. Um, you, you also get, I mean, this is kind of where I started because originally I was working on literature, uh -huh. um, early print translations of European fiction. So um, Fenelon's uh, Les Aventures de Telemac, The Adventures of Telemachus, um, which Tartawi translates when he's in Sudan in the 1850s, um, and Robinson Crusoe, which Bostros Bostani in, yeah. in Beirut translates. We kind of knew about this stuff. It's all in print. It's it's relatively familiar. Um, you have people like Hurani or Ibrahim Abu Lugod with his book from like the 60s, Arab Rediscovery of Europe. You know, this right. stuff was fairly familiar. But what I discovered was that there was this earlier um, set of translators um, who'd been translating really quite similar stuff, stuff which was definitely from the European Enlightenment originally, but 20, 30 years earlier mm. than any of that. Um, and they're this small group of um, translators based in Damietta in Egypt, which is then a very important port in Egypt. And they're Syrian Christians originally, but settled there for, for a few generations. Um, and they're working really, you know, the translations that I'm aware of between 1808 and 1818, quite a specific period. So let's just start with this. I mean, this is a very basic question. You know, why Damietta? It's not a place. Damiat is not a place we think of as an intellectual center anymore in Egypt. But, you know, those of us that study early modern Egyptian history, you know, know it as a major port. Yeah. So um, at the time, it was basically the main port in Egypt. Ah. It was the place where most stuff that was exported and imported between Egypt and the Levant um, and Europe went through. I mean, Alexandria was there, but it was actually somewhat less important at the, at the time, I think. And 
it was also where you would have European consuls and travellers and, and people arriving. Um, and basically, in Damietta at the time, there were quite a few Western Europeans, Franks in the in the kind of terminology of the time. Um, there was a sort of a community of around maybe a couple hundred Greeks, Hellenes, um, who were settled there and who were also very much involved in that kind of Eastern Mediterranean trade. But there was also a few hundred Syrian Christians, mm. Greek Orthodox and Greek Catholic, who'd been settled there since the early um, 18th century, at least. Um, so around the time of the uh, the Melkite Schism, right. which people like Thomas Philip have worked on, that movement of um, of... Syrian Christians from places like Aleppo, Damascus, Tripoli, um, into these other port cities and their involvement in kind of pan-Mediterranean networks of trade increasingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of the context. It was a, it was a major centre for contact between um, Egyptian and Syrian Arabs and Europeans and also other peoples of the Eastern Mediterranean at the time, right. even though later on it became a backwater. Why were Syrian Christians the main translators of this? I think you have to look at a number of ways in which this group of specifically Greek Orthodox Syrian Mm. Christians based in Egypt um, were quite well placed to do this. Most of the translations that they're working on don't come directly from uh, French or English or languages of Western Europe. Um, They're translated into Arabic from Greek and to an extent from Italian. Um, and so these people are part of networks of trade largely, but also to an extent church networks, mm-hmm. um, which link them to Greek Orthodox Christians uh, in particular, um, but also to Western Europeans. So Italian merchants, French merchants, British um, you know, and consuls and travellers um, who are coming through Damietta. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, they obviously have a distinct interest in Arabic literary culture. Um, so they're in contact with the sort of circles um, in Lebanon around the court of Bashir Shahabi, um, who are involved in a kind of, you know, already in a kind of revival of Arabic courtly poetry, I suppose. And there are also Syrian Christians back in Aleppo, where a lot of these people um, have come from, um, who already in the sort of 17th, 18th centuries um, have been engaged in this so-called Christian Nahda, which again is an even more awkward term than the Nahda properly. But, you know, there is apparently, again, I'm not very familiar with this material myself, but people talk about... um, a kind of um, a new classicism in people writing poetry. There's certainly a lot of translations of things from um, European languages and and Greek uh, into Arabic at that time. So these people are at the kind of intersection of a variety of different uh, intellectual groups and they're kind of bringing this together in their translation. Yeah, I think that they're they're in the right place at the right time. They they have all of these things which you need in order to um to want to translate this stuff and to get it into Arabic because you know they're in contact with Europeans and Greeks and they obviously, you know, some of them know Greek and Italian, but they're not like, well, 
we can read this stuff in Greek and Italian, why bother to translate it into Arabic? They want to get it into Arabic because they have a pride in the Arabic culture and the Arabic literary heritage. The guy who's the main patron of this circle has a big ar- library uh-huh. of Arabic books and patronizes poets who, who, are, um, who are passing through Damietta quite apart from the translation. Um, and so you need to have that as well. Um, in a sense, if if they're if they're too sort of cosmopolitan and they've become yeah. part of these networks, you know, um, to the extent that they're not cared about, uh, they're not bothered about Arabic anymore, then they wouldn't bother translating this of stuff, course. right? <laughs> so. so these translators, they're conversant in Greek, in Italian. They're translating into Arabic because of this pride in literary culture. What are the texts that they think are going to add value to the Arabic literary world? So this is the interesting thing about mm-hmm. um, about this circle and why in some senses it could be seen as a precursor of the later Nahala in quite a sort of, um, in, in quite a standard sense of the Nahala. They're translating a lot of stuff which derives from the European and particularly the French Enlightenment. So they're translating um, historical works by uh, Voltaire or on the ancient world by um, the sort of standard Enlightenment classicist Charles Rollin. They're translating uh, stuff on natural philosophy um, from that's originally written in, in English, but also things that are originally written in Greek. Uh, quite a lot on astronomy by the French astronomer Lalande. Um, also some of the earliest um, fictional writings to make it into Arabic from European languages. So Telemaque, The Adventures of Telemachus, which is this didactic novel that's very, um, very, very popular through the Enlightenment period by Fenelon, a French archbishop, and also the very controversial um, uh, sort of didactic novel Bellissère, by Marmontel, who's one of the philosophes in Paris and is friends with Voltaire and so on. His book is uh, is banned by the Sorbonne and there's this whole Enlightenment controversy around it. And th- there's a few more works that we, we know less about. Um, there are some that are, um, in a sense, more similar to things that have been translated previously. So there's a big church history by a Greek um, bishop, uh, there's there's another book which interestingly is, it sets out to be a refutation of Voltaire's ideas on the Bible. So this is a Christian mm. uh, Catholic writer sort of saying, no, this is why Voltaire is wrong, and this is why um, you know the Catholic religious faith is is right. Um, and there's also um, one of the most peculiar but interesting ones is that there's a retranslation of a set of stories which come from the Arabian Nights cycle which have been translated, I think, into French and then somehow have got into Greek and they're called the Tales of Abu Bakr and then they're (laughs) translated back into Arabic. Uh Um, And so, again, I don't know exactly the provenance of this stuff and how they've made it um, through the European languages to get into Greek, but there's stories about... um, you know, about Harun al-Rashid and these things, which which obviously come from that kind of uh, world. So they're already interested in how um, other people see Arab culture as well, I think, which is interesting. Or do you think that it's, you know, that there's this general interest in romance and like these stories uh, in the, you know, in the late 18th or early 19th century Mediterranean and that they can, you know, take them from, you know, from Belisar or from, you know, the reimagined Arabian Nights. 
Yeah, it, it could well be that, yeah, yeah, that they're just interested in stories and in, right. in, in stuff of, of that sort. But I mean, they're certainly aware that this is something which is derived from an Arab culture, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at that, they translate it as a hadith Abu Bakr or Abi Bakr. And it's, yeah. it's not... Um, it, it's it's not like they wouldn't be aware of that link. And it's something which crops up again, say, in the later sort of phase of the Nahda. One of the first things that Rafat al-Tawi um, from mm-hmm. Egypt translates when he goes to Paris is a set of poems in French by um, an Egyptian about Egypt. Um, so that, that it, it's, it's a phenomenon that you find again and again, this right. kind of um, double mirror mm-hmm. thing. You know, we've talked about kind of the texts that have been translated, but who... Is paying for it? Are people just doing this out of their own goodwill, out of their own interest? I mean, who's actually involved in this translation movement in Damietta? The patron of the circle, it seems to be his idea. He's very much sort of the guy who's always cited in connection with it, um, is one of the most wealthy and well-connected um, Syrian merchants in Damietta at the time. And he's called Bersili Fakhr. Um, and he has a kind of trading network that goes across the Mediterranean. He has a cousin or something in the French diplomatic mm-hmm. service. Um, he he has a branch of his firm in Livorno. He's originally from Tripoli in Syria. Um, he he's he's very well connected, um, and he's also acting as a mm-hmm. as a kind of consular agent for the French uh, because this is about kind of 10 years after the French occupation of Egypt, right. uh, which is 1798 to 1801 with, with Napoleon. Um, and I think, although I don't know so much about it, that he worked for the French at that time. Um, and certainly later, he's very much acting as an agent for Drovetti, who's the kind of uh, French uh, uh, French diplomat in Egypt. And so his house is one of the places where a lot of European travellers and merchants and diplomats pass through on their way to Cairo or to other parts of Egypt. Uh-huh. So there's lots of descriptions, actually, of, uh, of him and his house from European travellers at the time. Huh. Um, and actually, some European Orientalists like Aslan de Charville are, are aware of this translation project and are even you know trying to contribute to it in a way although again the the Hmm. details are a little bit um sketchy on that what do you mean trying to contribute to it well so for instance what the the manuscripts of um of one of these uh translations of Belisère um is now in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France um and it was it has a dedication to um a French guy from Basile Fakhr. So the manuscript was given to a Frenchman. Um, and I think in the catalogue, which I believe Asselin de Charville may have been involved in writing because a lot of stuff of that time from um, in, in the in the Bibliothèque Nationale came from his manuscript collection. It, it says, it, you know, the claim is made that he supervised the translation into Arabic in some sense of this manuscript, although he's not mentioned in the manuscript mm-hmm. itself. So I don't know. I mean, it may be that um, he or someone else who's French has kind of overplayed the role of this Orientalist in, in this little moment of translation. Right. Um, but certainly, I mean, the fact is that a lot of the manuscripts made their way into European libraries later on. Um, you know, so Europeans are interested in the fact that this that this stuff is happening and right. uh, as well as um, the mainly uh, Syrian Arab Christians um, who also acquire copies of the manuscripts later. So there's a constant kind of reciprocity and... Uh, there's a constant reciprocal relationship between these Europeans and, uh, you know, these Syrian Christian translators. It's not just, you know, 
texts come over and they're just kind of passively received and translated by these Syrian Christians. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think you, you can see it as, as a much more kind of um, to and fro process than that. But the, the other thing that you have is this, um, this strong component of... Um, Greek influence. Mm. And this is something which hasn't really been talked about that much in terms of the Nahla, although there is some interesting work that's been done on kind of Arab Orthodox links and translations from Greek and Slavonic languages in the kind of 17th, 18th century period. But again, a lot of these earlier translations were made really under church auspices, um, as with the Catholic Church translating from French and Latin. Um, It's quite rare to find things which aren't on an explicitly religious topic. Whereas when you look at what was translated in Damien, at least what we know about, um, the explicitly religious works are quite few, actually. Um, And that's one of the things that I think is actually quite new about it compared to these earlier translation movements. But, I mean, it looks like, as far as I can tell, most of the texts which we know about, which were translated, their immediate sources were um, Greek translations of European Enlightenment works or original Greek works sometimes or, you know, Greek commentaries on European Enlightenment works, which were printed in the Greek diaspora. So in centres like Vienna and Venice, um, which were the major intellectual centres along with perhaps Paris um, of the so-called Neo-Hellenic or Greek Enlightenment in the late 18th century, rather than what's now Greece. So, you know, we've talked about the patron, Mm. uh, but who are the translators necessarily? So there's a few people who seem to have been involved, including some Europeans. So possibly Aslan de Charville, um, Basile Fahre also, um, when he translates Telemach um, from the Italian, um, he thanks an Italian, well, someone who looks like he's probably Italian, called Giovanni Lavagiti, Lavagiti or something like that. Um, we only have the Arabic uh, for helping him with, um, with the translation. Um, there's also a cousin of his who seems to have um, collaborated, but the main guy who's doing the translations and who most of the ones we know about um, are credited to is a guy called Aisa Bitro or Petro, um, who is a Greek Orthodox priest who's specifically employed and paid, I think, by Bersley Fakhr and lives in his house. And his job is to do these translations. Mm. Mm. So it's the patronage aspect here. And this guy is very interesting, actually, because he goes on to become a translator for the, uh, the early Protestant missionaries. American and British Protestant missionaries when they come to Syria and the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. He's originally from Jerusalem and he moves back to Jerusalem after um, after the Damietta Circle seems to have kind of come to an end. Um, and so in the 1830s or 20s and 30s, um, a lot of the uh, British and American missionaries encounter him and employ him as a translator for some of their early kind of Protestant works. And they describe him as this very sort of um, argumentative and intellectual and probably quite arrogant guy, you know, that, that's always interested in having a kind of intellectual debate with them about uh, their version of religion and his and he's making globes that he uses uh, you know he, he's clearly a bit of a polymath mm. so okay so now we've gone we've gotten a glimpse of the patron the translator shall we move on to the readers the reception of these works well that's where it gets difficult um because I mean, the reason why these things have been forgotten is basically they weren't printed. None of this stuff made it into print. Um, And so they circulated in manuscript copies 
not very many manuscript copies. I mean, some of them seem to have been lost entirely. We only have a reference to the title. Um, the ones of which there are extant manuscript copies, it's usually just one or two that, yeah. that we can find, you know, we can pin down information that there was a copy, even if we can't get hold of it now, like it's in a catalogue or something. Um, and there are a few which there seem to have been, you know, a few more, maybe half a dozen. Um, but basically all of these things, as far as I can tell, remained in um, Syrian Christian hands or in European hands. Mm. I haven't found much evidence of them circulating very much actually within Egypt. Yeah. Although there's one which I didn't know about when I wrote the article and which I need to look more into, which is in the uh, Alexandria Library now. I don't know how it got there. Um, most of the ones I know about seem to have made their way into Beled Hashem, um, you know, Greater Syria. Um manuscript collections and libraries or into Europe. Mm. Um, so the readership is limited and it's largely um, Syrian Christians and Europeans, the sort of people who are already involved in these circles. But what else was going on around that and what other networks of distribution there may have been or what other contacts there may have been involving these right. manuscripts or um, people who are kind of influenced by them in some way is another question. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's often it seems that these these worlds of either Christians or Muslims and so forth are, and Europeans are just totally separate, especially if we just look at their textual records that, you know, we can't see the connections, but, you know, we always have to keep an open mind or kind of keep the possibility open that there is uh, different sets of networks of interactions and mobility of these manuscripts. Yeah, so there's, a, there's an interesting example, which is one guy who um, who certainly is in touch with the Damietta Circle, um, called Botos uh, Anhori, who's a Greek Catholic merchant and the uncle of Mikhail Mishaka, who's fairly well known in sort of later Nahla stuff. Um, and he um, apparently studies astronomy in Damietta with a Muslim sheikh um, called Muhammad al-Miqati. And he then reads some of the stuff which has been translated on astronomy from the French originally by the Damietta Circle, by Lalande and stuff like that. And then he goes on to write his own book on astronomy, on eclipses mm. later on, which I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, w whether it draws on both of these influences, whether... Um, you know, uh, one of them supersedes the other, whether there's an explicit engagement between them, whether he's trying to sort of syncretize them, I don't know. But this seems to be evidence of an existing kind of local interest in a particular discipline, astronomy, which then enters into an interaction with um, knowledge that's in some sense derived from Europe mm -hmm. um, and leads to sort of further creative work. Um, so it's not just a kind of diffusion um, of European knowledge in that case, I would okay. say. That's a great point. Let's take a musical break. We're going to return to those points uh, right after this. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza here with Nir Shafir talking to Dr. Peter Hill about a group of Syrian Christian translators who lived in Damietta, Egypt. 
in the early 19th century. They were working on translating materials from the Greek Enlightenment as well as materials from Italian and French into Arabic at this time. Right. And I think you've given us a kind of fascinating glimpse of this early translation circle, but I I'm, I just want to tie this back into the discussion we began the podcast with, you know, about the Nahda. You know, how does this change our ideas of the Nahda? Are we simply moving the timeline back, you know, saying, okay, it's not 1850s or it's not 1890s, but it's actually 1800? Uh, or does this kind of pose a greater challenge? So, yeah, I think that's one way in which you could take this and just saying there is this narrative of kind of diffusion from Europe of the Nahda as simply a kind of um, acceptance or acquisition of European Enlightenment knowledge. And this is happening um, a couple of decades earlier than we thought. And so it doesn't really change very much. I don't think that's the most interesting way to take it, because I think that there are other aspects of this um, of this circle, which may help us to kind of um, think a bit more about what that whole um, translation and um, engagement movement with Europe, but also with other places was through the long 19th century. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, the fact that a lot of this stuff is not coming, um, a lot of the translations are not being made directly from French or English, say. It's not this kind of bilateral relationship between the Arab world and France or Paris that you see in the kind of standard accounts of Rifat al-Tawi, the Egyptian um, the, the Egyptian scholar and traveller who goes to Paris and describes it and comes back and does yeah. lots of translations. Instead, you have um, things like Italian and Greek involved in the mix. Um, you know, you, you have um, translations, okay, of European material originally, but that are coming through centres of the Greek um sort of intellectual and merchant diaspora mm-hmm. um, into Arabic. You have also some interesting evidence of um, people like Butros Anhori, who I mentioned earlier, um, engaging with existing local traditions of things like astronomy um, or medicine, say, alongside things which are being translated um, from European languages. Um, so I think that... We, we can sort of use this as a way in to thinking about the Nahda in general as something um, in which the agency of the local intellectuals who are doing this kind of translation or adaptation or engagement with European-derived materials is taken much more seriously and they're not seen right. simply as transmitters um, or as receptors of something yeah. for which the original kind of, you know, big bang happens in uh, Western Europe. So we're moving away from a, a vision of, let's say, European diffusion of ideas, local reception and reaction, and then kind of the adoption of those ideas you know that the, this is a much more let's say complicated and and, and connected uh, story with multiple points of interaction sure i mean i think there are some points where you can say okay the diffusionist narrative has a bit of a point yeah. i mean these people are in direct contact with some western europeans in the wake of napoleon's occupation of egypt yeah. which has often been taken as you know this kind of cataclysmic event which opens up um the the arab world to western modernity right um that's one aspect of what they're doing. Um, but then there are other aspects there. There's the pre-existing um, kind of renewal of interest in the Arabic literary heritage and the uh, Arabic, uh, you know, classical 
language um, that goes back into the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, there's the contact through the Greek Orthodox Church, but also with trade with um, Greek speakers. Um, you know, th- there are interesting people who are kind of connected um, in some sense with these uh, Greek texts um, who have been worked on in a con- in a context of um, both the kind of Greek and Orthodox Enlightenment, but also the Ottoman Enlightenment. You know, Chrysanthos Notaras, who's a patriarch of Jerusalem, one of his geography books is translated into Arabic at this time. And he's a guy who, you know, supposedly um, is involved in uh, printing stuff in Arabic in Jerusalem. He's studying with Muslim Ottoman sheikhs. Um, he travels to Europe. Uh, he's in correspondence with, you know, figures of the kind of canonical European Enlightenment. Uh, you know, there's there's other things going on in terms of circulation um, of ideas and people in the Eastern Mediterranean, other than just a kind of straightforward diffusion from a centre in Paris or somewhere. Right. Something that strikes me about the very terminology that you're using to talk about this this uh, circle of people is, you know, the use of the word circle in Damietta circle, because this is sort of, to me, a, a very strong parallel with the circle in the Abbasid period of uh, people around, for example, Hernan bin Ishaq or Yohanna bin Masaway, who were patronized by various Abbasid caliphs to translate again, from Greek into Arabic. Of course, this is a very different moment, but I wonder if you have seen any parallels in the way that that translation movement, again, another word that crops up in both contexts, and the the material that you're looking at, especially since in the history of science, the narrative is so persistent that this knowledge was sort of passively transmitted into Arabic until it was sort of, you know, kept safe for the Latin West to take it back again. Right, a sort of relay race narrative of uh, science in which, you know, the Greeks come up with a whole bunch of stuff, the Arabs uh, store it away, uh, translate it, and then, you know, it's transferred to the Latins in the medieval period until, you know, becomes modern science or something like that. There is also that prominence of Christian communities as intermediaries in this time. Yeah, so it's interesting that um, in one of the kind of early classic accounts of the Nahla as a sort of literary movement, the parallel is drawn very explicitly. And this is in Georgi Zaydan's um, History of, Arab, uh, of Arabic Letters in 1914, where he refers to the Nahda um, of the kind of long 19th century as the most recent Nahda, Nahda al-Akhira. Um, and this is by contrast with the earlier Abbasid one. Mm. Um, so the, the parallel is there in that kind of standard narrative that that we're quite familiar with, although the standard narrative itself kind of changes. I mean, again, I don't know very much about the the Abbasid stuff, um, but certainly um, some aspects such as uh, Christian communities as intermediaries, simply because they happen to know the relevant languages, may be interesting ones to pursue. But I I don't know whether people still think of the Abbasid era, era um, translations as um, very much a kind of diffusion style from the classical Greek heritage or not. But this kind of points to a larger question, yeah. which is, you know, so much of our conception of what translation is and is in a sense embodies 
the notion of a diffusion model, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's based in some ways on a one-to-one right. notion of what translation is. An old-school version of translation. Yeah, an, an old-school. Well, in some ways, a very kind of... Um, a very modern as opposed to early modern or pre-modern notion of what translation is, which is that you have a one-to-one correspondence between the original and the translated text, that the translation should be faithful and that that's a proper translation. And if it's not, then it's failed in some way. And, And it hasn't got across what the original was trying to do. And I think that, I mean, certainly perhaps not so much in, in the Damietta circle itself, um, but certainly in um, the mid-19th century, when you're talking about someone like um, Rafael Tartawi or Butros Bustani, they're not doing faithful translations. Even the late 19th century, a lot of the stuff that appears in the Egyptian press in the kind of 1880s and 90s, these are adaptations of European writings. Uh-huh. And they, they involve... Um, not just the creative work that's always involved in um, in, in any translation, I think, um, particularly where um, the the languages aren't necessarily in in very close contact beforehand, and so just coming up with the terminology is very is very tricky and and interesting. Um, but also, you know, um, someone like Tartawi will compile from a number of different European sources. He'll bring in. Um, you know, comments of his own or change things. Um, one of his pupils who I was recently working on um, translates a European history book and writes this whole appendix where he explicitly refutes um, the author's arguments about the Ottoman <laughs> Empire because he says the Ottoman Empire is a despotism and uh, the translator says, no, it's a kind of constitutional state. Um, you know, th- this kind of engagement is, I think, um, more critical um, than we've necessarily thought when we've just looked at the list of books that were translated because it's taken a long time for people to get around to actually looking inside many of these things yeah. I think even when they're talking about the sort of well-known translations um, of the sort of 1830s onwards that appear in print. This is really reminiscent of the work of for example Marwa Shakri reading Darwin in Arabic who does do a very deep engagement with these actual translations and tries to get at the interpretive elements of this and the creative elements of this process. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's, a, that's a good kind of um, notion of, of the direction that I'm hoping to move the earlier 19th century stuff in, th- this stuff that's been done. Because, it, I mean, she's talking again about this sort of rather later period of the Nahda. But again, it, in terms of not just did the Arabs know about Darwin, and if if they did, then that means they're modern or some some <laughs> notion like that. But what was Darwinism in Arabic? What kind of debates were they engaging with? Um, and what role did Darwin specifically or other European derived things play in that particular local context? And what was already there? I mean, this is one of the question which questions which I'm quite interested in pursuing, actually. What was already there in Arabic before yeah. something like um, the translations or versions of Darwin through Buchner or whatever come into um, come into Arabic? You know, the extent to which um, this kind of modern or enlightenment derived scientific or rationalistic um, sort of intellectual tradition has already become quite established in Arabic through things like the Damietta circle from, from very early on. Um, and there's some interesting examples um, of people who in the kind of early and middle part of the 19th century, like Michal Meshaka, who I think are very much mm. um, engaging in, in that kind of way. So I, unfortunately we're running out of time. So, but I just want to want to, 
kind of return to this question that we began with uh, about the narratives of the Nahda and how, what exactly is changing here, especially in light of your research. You know, I feel like so much of the, this narrative of the Nahda is a diffusionist narrative. It is a narrative of the spread of European knowledge. At the same time, it seems you know, not uh, satisfying enough to just say, you know, there's multiple more points of connection that they, you know, that they were, they weren't just translating from, you know, European French to Arabic, but there was, you know, some Greek in there as well. Is it still useful to even use the Nahta? You know, can we d- separate it from this kind of diffusionist narrative? So I'm not particularly wedded to the term Nahta. I, th- I think, you know, so like a term like the Renaissance in European yeah. studies, it's kind of become attached to this particular period. And it implies certain kind of ideological claims to novelty and so on um, that I don't necessarily buy, but it's sort of become the general descriptor. Um, and it's in that sense that I continue to use it, really. But, I mean, in, in terms of the relationship to Europe, you're right, I think, that you need to do more than just say, look, there are multiple centres and there's circulation and entanglement and so on, and and that this isn't just diffusionism because it, that begs the question of what then is it? Yeah. And one of the ways that I've kind of been coming around to thinking about um, this kind of relationship is in terms of a dialectic between a set of international, if you like, you know, um, power relations and also cultural and and economic relations, of course, involving Europe. But then on the other side of the dialectic, a much more local um, set of relations about where a particular group, whether it's intellectual or you know a state or um, a, a particular kind of economic class or something fits into its own sort of local milieu. So, I mean, if you look at the Damietta translators, they're certainly dependent on being in contact with Europe, right? Um, that's where they have their trade networks across the Mediterranean with. This, these are the markets they're very much involved with. But they also have their, their networks within Egypt and Beled Sham, And those things are also necessary. They couldn't do without either of them. In terms of, again, intellectually, they have their contacts with both Greeks and Western Europeans. And for these translations to happen, you need those things. But you also need to have a certain kind of pride in Arabic, I think, in order yeah. to even want to get this stuff into Arabic and to want to kind of collect Arabic books. And so you need to be able to put the two together. And the point about this situation is that what they're doing is kind of dependent on um, that dialectic still being in operation rather than it collapsing entirely to one extreme or the other. So if you had complete sort of European colonial control of Egypt or Syria at this time, um, the kind of role that these groups play would necessarily be enormously reduced. It's not in their interest. Contact with Europeans, but you know, European domination isn't. At the same time, just to kind of cut that European or Mediterranean, th- th- those links out entirely. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, isn't in their interest either. And you can think again of the parallels with um, something like Mehmed Ali's state, which um, which these guys are operating under and which later, you know, develops its own relationship to a period of the of, of the Nahda with people like Tatawi in the 1830s and 40s in particular, that something like Mehmed Ali's state is very much using European-derived techniques and ideas. And that's one part of what it's of what it's doing and how it becomes successful, um, particularly in, um, you know, military terms um but it and it's also um it's also very much involved in market relations with europe 
um, you know, it's yeah. selling cotton and grain and stuff to Europe. But at the same time, it still legitimizes itself largely in local terms and Islamic and Ottoman Empire terms. Mehmed Ali is trying to start a dynasty. Um, and he's also, in a sense, um, I guess, innovating on existing local modes of doing things, whether it's agricultural relations in the countryside and the abolition of the Iltizam, but its replacement by his kind of attempted um, monopoly of Egyptian uh, agricultural production, or whether it's um, his use of uh, certain kind of azharis um, in his... um, state bureaucracy like Tartawi and then sending them to Europe. So he's operating on multiple levels here, right? Yeah, I mean, you can think of it in terms of um, in terms of multiple levels, or in terms of a, um, a states or groups who have to be kind of amphibious. Um, they have to be able to talk, say, the discourse of civilization in uh, that kind of international hegemonic European terms, but also the discourse of Ottoman and Islamic legitimacy. Uh, they have to be able to. Um, borrow military methods or you know other kind of methods in state organization from europe in order to be um successful but at the same time they they have to continue some aspects of how you do those things in egypt previously yeah Yeah, i mean i i'd say that the the dialectic can shift um to a point you know along to the in the direction of greater european domination and control um and or the opposite, but the point about this particular kind of moment in the history of somewhere like um, like Egypt or Beled Hashem um, is that you have a lot of these local elite groups who are dependent precisely on not allowing it to go too far either way. Yeah, and I think that's a useful. I think that's a useful way of understanding a variety of different dynamics. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Ali Pasha in Yanina on the Adriatic coast in, in Albania. Uh, I think there's a whole variety of different examples that we can draw upon and kind of use uh, some of your insights to explore this kind of interesting moment of intellectual history in the late 18th uh, and early 19th century. One thing that is quite interesting to pursue, I think, is the extent to which, um, you know, say, Mehmed Ali's state or what Ali Pasha is doing can then be put into a much broader set of comparisons Uh with, say, um, in the 18th century, Tipu Sultan in Mysore in India, again, taking lots of kind of European military techniques, uh, coming up with his own, in a way, hybrid, innovatory, um, state-centralizing regime. Um, You can think of um, certain West African states like the Ashanti or Dahomey through a similar kind of of lens, perhaps. Um, Siam is another example, a state which doesn't actually become colonized directly by Europeans. And there's some interesting work that's been that's been done on that um, by Thongchai Winichakul. And of course, Japan, which is yeah. the classic example of the one that gets away, right? Where yeah. you have this period of kind of hybrid innovation, drawing on some kind of European forms and ideas, very much in contact with the outside world, which means a world dominated by the West. So, you know, United States and Europe, um, but also successfully reaching the point where Japan can bat in the same league as those European powers as a global imperial power by the kind of, you know, um, the, the age of great empires right. um, in the, 1890s in the and, kind of 1890s yeah. and so on. And I, I mean, obviously, you know, success and failure perhaps are, are 
rather sort of old-fashioned terms to think of this in, but it, it's interesting to compare the different trajectories at least and to look at a number of different places which have been through this phase, if you like, between um, the advent of really quite sort of strong and serious relationships um, with an outside world that is largely dominated by Europe, if you like, not yeah. necessarily just with Europe or Western Europe or the West itself. Um, uh, but before you get any kind of direct incorporation in a stable way yeah. into a completely European dominated colonial order. And of course, then there are arguments about whether these, you know, these local phenomena then continue even under formal European yeah. rule, which is another question really. But So unfortunately, <laughs> we're out of time, uh, but thank you for leading Thanks us so much. in this dialectic from 1810s Damietta to uh, 1890s Japan. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and I think we've learned quite a bit uh, not only about the Nahda but also kind of ways of writing the Middle East into global histories uh, and into reconceiving the 19th century in general uh, so thank you again Peter Hill uh, well thank for, you it's great <laughs> for those listeners that would like to know more you can definitely check out his articles I mentioned one of them in the beginning of this podcast uh and it was the first Arabic translations of Enlightenment literature, the Damietta Circle of 1800s uh, and 1810s. I think he has a variety of other articles uh, as well as a thesis. Um, and you can look forward to uh, a set of exciting scholarship uh, about 19th century intellectual history uh, from him and Hossein Almar at Oxford. For those listeners that would like to know even more, you can check out uh, on our website. He'll, Peter Hill will provide a bibliography, a few pieces here and there for you to uh, learn even more. And please join our Facebook group where you can connect with other like-minded listeners. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. جميع الكحلات مع البيضات راني متهني لقيت معاهم في النراحات يا الكحلات ليتي الخليات تكوني اه وقالت لك حلا